From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. Today's Blue Sky guest is chronologically older than anyone we've featured to date. But at 87, Alan Patrikoff remains full of energy and drive and is hardly slowing down. In 2022, he released a memoir, No Red Lights, where he describes his remarkable life and career as a legendary investor and how, in his ninth decade, he's launched a brand new investment firm, Prime Time Partners, and is actively pursuing his goal to live to be 114 years old. Alan Patrikoff has started three separate successful firms that have made a mark on the venture community over the past 50 years. He's participated in the financing at an early stage of more than 500 companies, including Apple Computer, AOL, Office Depot, New York Magazine, Audible, Huffington Post, Sunglass Hut, Axios, and the list goes on. In addition to his professional business career, Alan has lived an eclectic life participating in politics, art, theater, and international development, while being a five-time marathon runner, a world traveler, and a person who lives life to its fullest. It was a great honor and pleasure to interview Alan Patrikoff, and I hope you enjoy this Blue Sky conversation as much as I did. Alan Patrikoff, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate you joining me, and I, I want to start by saying that I really enjoyed your memoir, No Red Lights. Uh, it was released last year, and I was glad to have the chance to read it in preparation. It's a terrific read, and it covers not only the, the details of your life and career, but what I like best was the sharing of the lessons you learned along the way. And it's not a book necessarily just about venture capital at all, but that's where I'd like to start. You got into venture capital before it was even a thing or had a name back in 1970. You left a very comfortable job or a predictable job to do it. I'm wondering from you, where did you find that hope and optimism to make a leap like that into an unknown field? It was, uh, you know, the, the, I guess based on my entrepreneurial nature and my curiosity and and really uh, it, it evolved from experience I had had in the jobs I had been in, which is I had managed public securities for a corporation and for a family group. And uh, in the course of that, we would time to time get opportunities to invest in private companies. And nobody had any interest in that area except for me. And uh, they had been doing it before I was there. And I'm sure it did it afterwards, but they would uh, be offered an opportunity and make an investment, whatever the amount. And they put paperwork in a drawer and forget about it because you couldn't track it on the stock market. I, you know, opened the drawer uh, and you might say uh, figuratively and spend time uh, on several companies that were private in this uh, portfolio. And among them was New York Magazine, which I became chairman of the board and a company called Datascope, which was in the medical electronics business. And the third one was a company called Lynn Broadcasting, which was in early early stages of 
television and radio. And I was intrigued sufficiently that uh, I said, you know, there are a lot of family groups out there that uh, need someone like me who uh, is interested in the private market, not just the public market. Uh, maybe they could, you know, they could do their own public investments, but maybe I could help them in the private area. And so that's, that's how I started Alan Patrick Hoff Associates back in 1970. And, uh, you know, from there, it was just, uh, and I, we, we started the business uh, advising private family groups on private investments. When it comes to why you're the person you are, I know that you are the child of immigrants. Your parents came over to the U.S. from Ukraine fleeing pogroms. And I've always thought of immigrants as the ultimate optimists in a way. Do you think that having immigrant parents influenced your outlook on life? Uh, you know, I don't know. You know, I get asked that often. I, uh, I can't say that that in itself had an impact. I would say more so that my parents came from a poor background and uh, we lived, uh, uh, you know, a... I don't know where to position a lower middle class life uh, and uh, one of frugality. And uh, I would say I was brought up, you know, carefully. And, uh, you know, you had to, I had to work to uh, survive. I watched my father's hard work ethos. And I guess culturally, I, I didn't leave, I didn't grow up as a spoiled kid. So I, uh, I guess it affects you, you know, indirectly, whether you, I mean, my father did not train me to become an entrepreneur. That's for sure. One thing you said in your book that, that really struck me, um, and it, it might be counter to what some folks would think about in terms of a, a successful investor like yourself. This is a direct quote. You said, I prefer to approach the world assuming it is filled with people intent on doing the right thing. I continue to operate with an assumption of trust and optimism. A lot of people, I think, would would assume that your profession is one that approaches opportunities with some skepticism and some uh, questions about the the veracity of the statements made by founders and that sort of thing. You take a different approach. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, you know, it's interesting you say that. I, I just, you know, I don't think there's any purpose served by getting up every day and thinking someone's out to get you uh, or that, you know, I, I, skepticism I I wake up every day with a lot of optimism and uh, you know I'm looking for the next opportunity uh, and you know I I don't lock my doors I don't lock my car I don't uh, put valuables away uh, worried about someone in the household you know who may be visiting or working uh, taking it, I uh, can spend too much time, you know, worrying about things that I, you know, are not going to help build you going forward. And uh, by the same token in business, I, I trust people. And uh, I don't think I've ever been really disappointed in the sense that someone's taken advantage of me. It's, a, it's an incredible thing to say at that at this point in your long career that you know, I, as you may have read in the book also, I've never sued anybody and I've never been sued. 
It's amazing. I, I interviewed Kevin Kelly recently of, of Wired Magazine and, and other things. He's, he's got a new book out and he introduced to me the concept of, of pronoia, which the opposite of paranoia, pronoia is assuming that everyone's actually out to help you. Well, that's a good point. I, I never thought of it that way, but I like it. Venture capital and private investing are so much a part of today's business world that it's hard to remember that these practices are relatively new. And it took optimistic visionaries like Alan Patrikoff to stop closing the drawer on private companies. And in doing so, these individuals helped create an entrepreneurial culture in this country that produced some of the world's great businesses and products. I also really appreciated hearing Alan's approach to assuming the best in people. This can be a really hard thing to do, and it's reassuring to know that it's worked so well for someone like Alan. Getting back to our conversation, I wanted to talk about something that is mentioned frequently in his book, No Red Lights, the importance of meeting people and forming friendships. The other thing you talk a lot about is uh, friendships and meeting new people, and you describe going to uh, industry conferences, and instead of sitting with people from your own firm, you seek out strangers and make friendships. Uh, can you talk about how important that's been in your life and career and keeping keeping friendships going? I have a broad circle of friends and, and acquaintances, and I am continually meeting people, uh, even to this day, at this stage in life. And uh, I go to new events, uh, uh, regularly with the idea that, you know, I'm going to, uh, be exposed to some idea or a new person that, uh, I can't say it will change my life, but will certainly, uh, uh, enrich my life. You, uh, you, you, you focus a lot on, on well-being, your personal well-being, your health. Um, uh, we'll talk later. You have a goal now to live to 114, um, recently, the Surgeon General came out and, and gave a public health warning on, on loneliness and said that, that being alone and experiencing loneliness is like smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Um, do you think that's an important part, not just in terms of your, your career and your outlook, but do you think in your own personal health that maintaining friendships is important? Well, I, I, it's hard to relate it to me since I've you know, never had that problem facing me, but I would certainly say based on the work I've done in prime time, that loneliness is a very important issue that uh, people have to deal with it. And it's cause of depression and, it, you know, because, uh, you know, people lose all that excitement and desire for life. So speaking of excitement and desire for life, um, at the age of 86, you started Primetime Partners, which you just referenced. Could you describe to me and our listeners what that's all about, why you chose to do this, and, and what kind of opportunities you're pursuing? I uh, decided that uh, you know, I had done a lot of study, uh, reading, just like you've referred to things. There are lots of articles around, lots of conferences, position papers, and talking about the fact that the fastest growing part of the population is by the people over 60. There'll be more people over 60 by 2030 than they'll be under 18. I've always had this objective of living to 114 myself. Uh, and uh, my wife had passed away 
a year or two before that from Alzheimer's, and I saw all the problems that people have or have chronic illnesses, and also people who are just getting older. And uh, uh, I saw a lot of older friends uh, being put into forced retirement because they had aged out of their firm, uh, or they voluntarily uh, uh, left and were going to Florida or Palm Springs or Palm Beach or wherever they were going to play golf. And it seemed to me they were packing it in too early and uh, they either by their own choice or by someone else's. And if you follow my thesis that I'm gonna live to 114, at age 60, you're just a little bit past halfway in your life. So uh, I thought this was an interesting opportunity uh, for investments and no one else was doing it. And I don't know what, where you are in the timeline. Have you have you made investments at this point? And can you share some of the promising companies you're involved with? We've made over 30 investments. We formed a fund. We're actually probably in the next several months going to do a new fund, our second fund, follow one. Uh, so uh, clearly, you know, we've seen opportunities uh, and they, you know, range from all kinds of products and services and technologies from, uh, you know, overcoming loneliness for uh, improving your physical uh, condition and balance and, and health. Uh, and nutrition as, as medicine or alternative to medicine, caregiving, you know, and just general product needs that people have as they get older there that are different than, you know, younger people. And you've surrounded yourself with a team of primetime partners. Are they, are, are there others approaching your age or is it mostly younger people, a mix? How, how do you think about that? My partner is a woman who was 47 or so, 40 think, uh, late 40s. And we have two associates who are in their late 20s, and an intern also. So we've, uh, you know, it's a pretty balanced group. I'm kind of the eminence Greece and the group having, you know, good experience investing, but my partners, associates know a lot more about the whole health, health field, although we're not focused on just health there. I mean, you know, older people need everything. They need financial services. They need uh, real estate services. They need uh, all the things that you could think about. Alan agrees with the notion that creating and maintaining friendships is key to a healthy and long life. As are staying busy and keeping your mind sharp, Practicing what he preaches, at the age of 86, Alan launched Primetime Partners. And as he says, his firm is investing specifically on companies working to address the needs of our aging population. And in starting this venture, Alan surrounded himself with some significantly younger team members. And there's no doubt that their new ideas and energy are a great complement to his wisdom and experience. Now, back to my Blue Sky conversation with Alan Patrickoff. One of the themes I've found in interviewing folks for this show and uh, people who have come to life with an optimistic outlook is, and it surprised me, probably shouldn't, just about everyone I've talked to is, a, is what I would consider a lifelong learner. And one of the pieces of advice you give in your book, um, you said, 
it, you talk about the importance of remaining curious and to read, read, read. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and, and what are your reading habits and how do you, how do you stay so active in learning? You know, it's a good question. Everybody wants to know that. I, I, I question myself. I, I, I think if you have a curiosity about life, the world, and uh, that, you know, I read three or four papers a day. Once in a while, I get a chance to read a book. I find myself reading a lot of market magazine articles. Uh, of course, I'm reading things about the industry I'm involved in. This is this aging profession. And uh, uh, I spend a lot of my time now doing podcasts uh, on, on this subject. And uh, we, we started primetime, Abby Levy, my partner and I, decided that we would become thought leaders in this area. So we do appear at a lot of conferences and symposium dealing with this subject and want to get the message out, whether it's through that mechanism or on television or radio, to people that this is an emerging industry. It's, it's not AI, it's not regenerative AI, it's not chat GPT. But uh, that will certainly be a, a, a tool uh, going forward for some of these companies. Now, when someone's at your stage and is, is a celebrated, successful investor, people tend to focus on all the hits and all the wins. But people who know the industry know that there are a lot of losses that come along the way. And there's a quote from your book I really appreciated where you said, life did not always unfold the way I would have liked it to. And I decided to adapt to the new circumstances rather than retreat from them. Can you talk a little bit about dealing with disappointments, failures, loss? Well, if you're in the venture business, you've got to have problems. It, it just goes with the territory. Uh, and we, you know, particularly in prime time, we're dealing with, what we call uh, seed investments and even pre-seed. So they're very early on and the failure rate's very high. And I think you have to, you know, prepare yourself for those kind of risks and adapt to them. And, uh, you know, I guess it's having been through it so many times, you have to be able to stare it in the eye and, and deal with it. And, uh, uh, you know, sometimes you, you lose the company and sometimes you can help re rejigger it in some fashion that you help it to survive. And one of the more fun and colorful sides to your life is your involvement in, in uh, production and um, Broadway film. Can you tell us a little bit of how you got into that? And it strikes me, it shares a lot of the characteristics of venture investing in terms of lots of losses, some big hits, <laughs> and hopefully a lot of fun along the way. Yeah, I, I, I do not want to describe myself as a Broadway producer, I'm more of, I, you might say, a Broadway angel because I don't make it my profession. But I, over the years, have probably invested, I don't know, 20, 25 shows. I guess on balance, I'm probably a little ahead, I'm guessing. I, I, I didn't add it all up. But I, I really don't uh, count it that way. Uh, and I, in the film business, I really invested in a couple of uh, film companies I didn't invest. I didn't specifically invest in a film, although I'm guess 
in my lifetime. I probably have, but I can't remember. But I was on the board of invested in a couple of film companies. And actually, each one, fortunately, won an Academy Award, although they didn't, uh, they didn't make uh, me, uh, I, I wouldn't say they came out as a big, successful investment. They're tough businesses. But, you know, they've added another dimension to my life. I mean, I've, my life has had many dimensions, which is why I wrote the book, to see the people that were younger, you know, try everything, whether it's politics or international affairs or, or classic car collecting or investing in Broadway shows, uh, you know, try lots of things besides just sitting at your desk and doing spreadsheets or if you're a lawyer doing uh, briefs or an architect doing drawings. I mean, you know, try, try uh, all the things that are available to you and then look for other things. So, uh, you know, that's why, you know, I have, I've had a very interesting multifaceted life. And again, the name of that book is No Red Lights, which I highly recommend. It's, it's a lot of fun and it's, it's, you've lived quite a, quite a life and you tell it extremely well. Well, the reason I, the reason I picked the title is it's the way I, by the way, I do it literally and figuratively. You don't want to walk down Madison Avenue with me because uh, it's, it's dangerous. I, I really do, uh, unfortunately, do a lot of jaywalking. But uh, but also, it, it it was designed to imply that you know I don't look for reasons, you know, stoplights. I I look for you know green lights all the time. I appreciated Alan speaking openly here about failure, as so many people look at an individual like him and think that his life has been full of nothing but success. To deal with failure, he describes it as important not just to move on, but to quote, stare failure in the eye and learn from it. And as he discusses his forays into film and Broadway production, you can hear the pleasure he's taken in adding these other dimensions to his life. Of course, most of us will never have the means to do this sort of work, but even much smaller ways of stretching from our usual work and ruts of habit would suit us well. And listening to him describe his jaywalking habit, I'm a little concerned that this might be the one thing that could keep him from making it to 114 years. Let's hope he at least keeps looking both ways. And now, back to our conversation and a more detailed look at Alan's thoughts about secrets to longevity. You talked before about retirement ages and people packing it in early. And you've taken such a radically different approach, not only not packing it in, starting a new venture, declaring that you want to live to 114. Can you share with us some of the secrets you think there are to longevity? I, I read them in the book, but I'd love for you to share. And one one habit, you you seem to have incredible personal discipline. I've said in the book that your your weight has never varied more than two pounds either way. You weigh yourself in the morning and again at night. Well, you really read the book. That's how- I read the book. I'm not just going to say I read. You know who else did something similar was Fred Rogers. If you read about him of Mr. Rogers, I don't think he weighed himself twice a day, but he weighed himself every day. And and I think he said it was one or two pounds as well. But could you just share with us some of the things as you, I mean, you're really taking this on as a project to live to 114. Can you share with us what you would consider some of the secrets? No, I mean, I just, I live an active life. I, uh, you know, yesterday I put in almost eight miles of walking. Today I'm 
walk to my office, I'll walk home tonight. Uh, if I have to, if I have a doctor's appointment, I'll walk to the doctor. I use every opportunity I can to walk. Uh, I have a trainer a couple of days a week, personal trainer. Uh, as you said, I, I do carefully uh, watch my weight because it's so easy to get it, you know, get out of control. And I control it very easily. If I gain more than two pounds, I skip one meal the next day, which is no problem. Uh, I've also been fortunate that I have a, uh, a significant other partner and uh, who she has the, uh, you know, a very relatively small appetite. And so we've just gotten in the habit of sharing every meal. What I've learned in the last five or six years is when you go out to eat at a restaurant, they invariably give you too much. And, I'm not the kind of person who likes to take home doggy bags. So I, it was a perfect uh, opportunity because of our mutual personalities to just share every meal. And I mean, share everything, not, not coffee at the end of the meal, but we share a drink, we share an appetizer, share a main course. If we'll have a dessert, we'll share that. And if you think about that, you know, that, that cuts down half of whatever it is for your, dinner meal and I skip a meal. I mean, it, it all, all together keeps me in shape. Uh, and then I, and then I work, I mean, cure being active, keeping your mind active is, is probably the most important thing. You wrote very beautifully about, about your, your late wife, Susan, and, and her condition started with aphasia, I think is the name of it. And then Alzheimer's. I'm wondering, um, where do you think we are? And I imagine this is in your field of view in terms of your investment, where are we with either cures for Alzheimer's prevention? Is there an optimistic tone there from you or do you think we're making good progress? Well, we haven't spent enough money from a government standpoint, uh, although recently that's been increased. Uh, I am, I'm pessimistic. I, I don't, you know, we read about all these new developments, whether it's, uh, Lily or whether it's uh, Biogen or whatever. And there's always seems to be something coming out. But when you read the fine print, they're all about early onset Alzheimer's and they're all extending, you know, two or three months or four months. Uh, you think that my wife had Alzheimer's for 12 years. Uh, I, and, and, they're, and they're very, based on what I read, very expensive and, uh, they're not a cure. And I think a lot of people get very excited. I can understand why reading about the new drug that just come out, it's going to treat early onset Alzheimer's, you read about it in the headlines and uh, your tendency is I got to get that for my, whoever I'm caring for. But, you know, it's very expensive. It does, my opinion does little for you. No, no one is curing Alzheimer's at the moment. Right. How about how about some of the other bigger issues? Cancer. I I believe, and I'm not a biotech investor, but I believe that the cancer will be cured. Not maybe not every form of it, but there are lots of things going on that I think the prospects are very good. There's so much attention and so much uh, you know drug development 
that I, I, I'm more optimistic uh, that we'll find the results we're finding. You know, we're solving nerve damage now. We're serving, so solving ALS, uh, uh, MS. I mean, not solving, but we're making really big progress. Uh, I don't see it in Alzheimer's. And I know there are a couple of drugs pending right now that, you know, there'll be a lot of noise about it, but I don't see the real breakthrough. It's remarkable to hear about the discipline with which Alan approaches his personal health. Anyone else out there weigh themselves twice a day? I'm not sure that part would ever work for me, but I do hear what he's saying about splitting the gigantic portions at restaurants. And clearly, by now you can tell that Alan is an extremely optimistic person. And because of that, I particularly appreciated his honest take on the lack of progress we're making on treating Alzheimer's. It's a reminder that having an optimistic outlook on the world doesn't prevent us from also being realistic. Cancer treatments, on the other hand, continue to advance incredibly rapidly, and it's amazing to think about how many forms of this terrible disease might soon be cured. I next wanted to ask Alan about a subject that is top of mind for so many of us these days, artificial intelligence. You, you mentioned in passing earlier artificial intelligence, and it, it wouldn't be a conversation <laughs> on anything without talking a little bit about our artificial intelligence. And given you've seen the dawn of so many different technologies and the internet and computers and the early investor in Apple, I'm curious to know where you think AI is going to fit in this, in that range of, of things that you saw at the beginning of, and then also specifically how it might help people in the aging process. I've heard some describe it as, you know, potentially that could be sort of the ultimate assistance. Um, so I'm curious to know your thoughts on on all things AI. I, I think AI, I've lived through multiple, what I call revolutions, whether it was personal computer, the chip revolution, the internet revolution, uh, cloud storage. I mean, there's so many revolutions that have taken place. I think AI far outweighs uh, its significance any of the others. I mean, it, I think it's going to be uh, adopted by every every segment of our lives, whether it's education, health, finance. It has implication for everything. And then it's going to speed up uh, development. It's going to, you know, tap into information that, you know, exists. And, uh, you know, I'm sure all of your listeners and you have heard, you know, the stories which are funny about, you know, what it does in terms of creating a story or creating a resume or, or change it in an instant into another language. I mean, these are pretty dramatic developments, but I don't, I think it's going to still need some human intervention. So I don't see it wiping out everyone's job. And uh, uh, it's still, it, we're still going to need some level of interpretation. We're not going to get the answer from AI, but it's go, sure going to accelerate uh, tapping into information that can help you make decisions. And what do you say to people who are so terrified of it and what it, where it could lead us and destroying the human race and that sort of thing? I don't think about destroying, but I do think the concept of reg regulating it early on is a good one. 
you know, there's constructive ways of making sure it's not abused. It has a lot of potential danger. So I think having some boundaries will be helpful, but I don't think it will stand in the way of some major breakthroughs. We've talked about your book and I've, I've asked you some questions about it. Are there any things that I've not mentioned that you'd like people to take away from the life you've led so far and the life you plan to live to 114? No, I just said, I, I, I want to encourage, that's why I wrote the book was to people who think that, you know, life is more than just the job they have. And, uh, and that, uh, there's a lot of opportunities in later life to do interesting things. And, uh, you know, I ran, you know, I, I walked the marathon this past year. I went to Burning Man. And don't, don't ask me what I'm going to do this year. I have thought it out. But, uh, you know, I'll, I hope to continue to do lots of interesting things. Uh, will you go back to Burning Man? Uh, there's a good chance I will, but I have not committed yet. <laughs> okay. Well, Alan, it has been a real pleasure to talk to you today. I, I really want to encourage people to read your book, No Red Lights. It's fantastic. You've led a remarkable life, and it's it's a pleasure to know that you have many more years left because I'm I'm pulling for it, and I think I think 114 is very doable given uh, given the kind of person you are and the outlook that you have. And I I really appreciate this time you spent with me. They can get the book on Amazon. Uh on uh, Audible, where I, I read the book on Audible. Since, you, as you know, one of the companies I started was Audible. The uh, CEO of Audible advised me when I was doing this that best best experiences on Audible are when the author reads his own book. So I took his advice. I mentioned, uh, I've mentioned you before that I, I was uh, Ted Turner's ghostwriter and Ted insisted that he read his own book as well. And, and we got that same feedback. It makes all the difference. And it's and it's a lot of work reading a book out loud for what it's much harder than people think. It sure is. So thank you very much, Alan. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. Take care. At a time when so many of us harbor fears about artificial intelligence, it's refreshing to hear someone with Alan's background and experience. Describe the opportunities for these new technologies as huge. And again, few if any of us are likely to achieve the kind of financial success that Alan has. But regardless, remembering his reflection that life is more than just the job you have would surely help us all. And if any of you are heading to Burning Man this summer, keep an eye out for Alan. I get the feeling he's gonna make it back this year. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Alan Patrickoff, and if you did, consider getting his memoir, No Red Lights. It's a really fun read. And if audiobooks are your thing, I'm sure that hearing Alan's narration will greatly add to the impact of his story. I also hope you'll consider subscribing to Blue Sky and following the Optimism Institute on social media. Until next time, I'm the founder of the Optimism Institute and host of Blue Sky, Bill Burke, and I thank you for listening.